Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 400 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. My guest is Harvard's John Cotter, the world-leading expert on change, which I think is going to be fascinating today. And today's episode is brought to you by Belay. You can text my name, Carrie, to 31996 to get your free download of Belay's Delegation Planner and start reclaiming your free time. And by Promedia Fire. Book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. Well, uh, back when I started out in leadership, I started at some very small churches that needed a lot of change. Some of you know that story. I mean, they were small. You think you're leading a small company, small church. Uh, we had average attendance of six at one of the churches, 14 at the second, and 23 at the mega church. Really small. Nothing had changed in the last, you know, 40 years. And I came in as this 30-year-old leader who had to figure out how to change everything. And fortunately for me, in 1996, the year after I started, um, John Cotter released a book called Leading Change. And somehow I got a hold of it. And it changed so much for me. Uh, a framework for leading change. It's still one of the classics on change all these years later. And uh, I decided to reach out to John to see, number one, if I could talk to him, and number two, if we could have a conversation all these years later on the podcast. And that's what we do today. John is widely regarded as the world's leading expert on change. He's a faculty member at Harvard Business School and graduate of MIT, and his books on change have sold millions of copies, and his theory on change has been embraced by some of the most successful companies in this world. He is an entrepreneur and inspirational speaker. His ideas have helped mobilize people around the world to really deal with an increasingly rapid pace of change. And we talk about that in the conversation. So I think you're going to love this. And at the end, I'm coming back with um, seven things not to say when you're leading change. And we're all leading a lot of change today. So that's at the very end of the podcast. For those of you who listen all the way through, for those of you who are new, welcome. We have a lot of new people over the last month. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. We try to bring you world-class conversations with world-class leaders uh, every single week, sometimes a couple times a week. And uh, today's episode, hopefully you'll find really helpful for you and your team. We have show notes for you and the like. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And then if you would share on social, we're really grateful for that. So it is a time of change. And whether you're running a business, a church, a not-for-profit, let me ask you an important question that will determine your digital success this year. What's more important, online content or strategy? Well, believe it or not, the key to growth online in 2021 is strategy because content is everywhere. So your strategy for creative design, social media, online pathways is vital to drive growth. But how do you do it when you don't have an infinite budget or even a team that really has mastered strategy? Well, that's where Promedia Fire can help. Promedia Fire has an entire team of professionals providing digital strategy and a creative framework to help you grow online. They have hundreds of clients. They know exactly what's working now. And you can get a free strategy session by going to promediafire.com forward slash church growth. And speaking of change, I've known uh, Brian and Shannon Miles over at Belay for years now. And I mean, a decade ago, right? A virtual assistant was a crazy idea. But talk about 
how things have changed. And if you want to expand your time and your productivity, what if I told you that Belay could help you have more time every week? Think of a few tasks you could delegate. And, and you know, I talk to leaders, high capacity leaders. They're like, I'm terrible at delegating. But what if you could delegate your email inbox, scheduling, uh, booking travel, planning meetings, expense reporting? Might sound a little scary, particularly for control freaks, but delegation is the cost of your sanity and the linchpin to the survival of organizations everywhere. So Belay is an incredible organization revolutionizing productivity with their virtual assistants, bookkeeping, and social media strategist service for church, not-for-profits, and businesses alike. And they're offering a free download of their incredible delegation planner today. All you have to do is text CARRY to 31996. That's CARRY, C-A-R-E-Y, to 31996 to get your free download of Belay's delegation planner and start reclaiming your free time. Well, without much further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Harvard Business School's John Cotter. Dr. John Cotter, welcome to the podcast. As uh, as I shared with the audience and with you, it's a real honor to have you. No, it's my pleasure, really, really. Well, uh, you've been such an influence in my life, uh, having picked up Leading Change. That came out in 96, didn't it? Was it the original publication? Yeah. One year into my leadership. And uh, for whatever reason, it came across my radar screen long before Amazon came along and uh, literally changed my life and have been using it to lead change. I'd love to start here. Why is change so hard? Almost every leader that's listening to this podcast is trying to change a company, a church, an organization, a team, someone's mind. Why is it so difficult? Um, There are at least three reasons. One is that yeah, so much of it is coming at us uh, more often in more complex ways, requiring quicker responses. Um, we can talk about that later on, mm-hmm. but the the trend upward is gone, goes way, way back, and it has really accelerated um, in the last couple of decades. And And on the other hand, organizations, as we know them, were not built to be rapid change machines. They were built to be efficient, reliable machines uh, that could ensure their survival. So they're much more survive-oriented than they are, which means, you know, hold on to what you got, uh, stabilize, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got human beings. And um, the people who are, have been studying uh, the brain and the hormone system and the like over the last 20 or 30 years, now with increasing use of uh, imaging and real data, um, if you read them carefully, the survive system in us is unbelievably powerful. And again, it tends to default toward uh, what it knows it defaults towards stability. Um, it we weren't kind of constructed to be r- rapid change creatures. Uh, so if you take a world that's moving faster and faster and faster, organizations that were not designed for that, and people who tend to default more to just hold on, you got a real challenge. Yeah. Yeah. 
All of that is true. And I mean, a lot of leaders, particularly those in the church, like I was leading hundred year old organizations, right? Like they, the churches mm-hmm. had been around and they were the little red brick buildings and we sold them within the first five years and everything. But the resistance was, was significant. Um, I was uh, poking through getting ready uh, for this interview, some of your other books. And uh, I know in Leading Change and I know in uh, Our Iceberg is Melting, you talk about the different groups associated with change. You have your early adopters, you've got, you know, sort of a quiet majority in the middle, then you have some resistors and opponents. I think you call them Dr. No-No in in Our Iceberg is Melting, a, a little parable, a fable that you wrote. Um, do you want to talk about that? Like what, when, whenever you're navigating change, there's always an enthusiastic group. There's always a resistor group. And that was life-changing for me, has been for 25 years now. Well, and the fact that everybody doesn't totally appreciate that is another, is one thing that gets them into trouble. Uh, it's not at all unreasonable for, to think okay, I have to change, for example, my organization, my church. Hmm. Well, that means everybody. So I focus on everybody and assume they'll all kind of go along at the same pace. But the study, the actual research shows that that is not what happens with any kind of significant change or any kind of innovation of any uh, magnitude, you tend to get this pattern of a few percentage that jump on board very quickly and very easily, early adopters or innovators or something, and then four or five groups all the way toward the kind of uh, the uh, the laggard laggards. And it's the number of change efforts by good people we're trying to do something that's useful that get bogged down and ultimately fail because somebody tries to move the laggards along with the um, innovators up front because it just seems logical. We have to move together. And the laggards, of course, just are, are anchors. Uh, yeah. They get pulled. They get pulled. Some of them never get pulled in. And those that do, it's when they discover they're in the 10% minority and everybody else has gone along. And there's enough proof at that point that this thing is working. So even somebody who's very inclined to think, uh, be cautious when it comes to change, uh, can be won over because they can see not only do all of these people and they moved in a new direction, but it's working. I think a lot of leaders, and I found this in myself, we get um, stuck or a little bit paralyzed or fearful of the opponents, the laggards. Um, and we wish everybody was an early adopter, um, right? The, the people who applaud you, that kind of thing. What are some good strategies for dealing with the tension between the early adopters who are ready to go and the laggards or the opponents who are resistant or even angry about change and and vocal about it? Right. One strategy is to look around your organization and find a project or a group or a unit that is filled with the early adopters 
and just focus on them at first to get some momentum going. Hmm. Okay. Just ignore it. Don't even talk to the laggards about it. That's one strategy. Corporations sometimes use the, if, if there's an important laggard on the executive committee deciding they need to off, uh, open up an office in uh, Singapore <laughs> and that, he's, that he is clearly or she is clearly the right person. So it, it's, a, it's a kind way of getting them out of the way. Another way, which is counterintuitive, is to invite everybody in a room, including the laggards, and um, allowing them to, in a sense, be irrational jerks in front of the crowd. And you, but the trick is you've got to maintain your cool and be straightforward, honest, thoughtful, and it can win over some of the people that are uh, in the middle, if you will, because they can see the contrast. But that requires, uh, obviously, some emotional maturity <laughs> and control on your part and a little bit of fearfulness, <laughs> uh, fearlessness, rather. It's really interesting, you know, John, because uh, that takes me back to like 1998 when we first proposed selling these historic three buildings. And of course, the church is a volunteer organization, right? So uh, I was the only one on the payroll at the time. So it's not like I was leading staff. I'm leading all volunteers. And you take me back to it. We don't have congregational meetings anymore. We have very large church now and very different governance structure. But we had congregational meetings. And I remember, you know, kind of had to go to the congregation. And I remember standing there one night in one of the churches and people just lined up the microphone to yell at me. And mm -hmm. they did. And uh, for whatever reason, I do not claim emotional maturity as a 32, 33-year-old, but I read your book <laughs> and I kept my mouth shut. And I just like, mm-hmm, thank you. Thank you. Those are good points. Thank you. Okay, anyone else? And someone else would yell at me. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm, that's great. And after the meeting... I had so many people come up and say, how did you hold your cool? Like, what did you do? And I thought, oh, this is just the grace of God, you know, or whatever. But it it, it kind of won the crowd over. Is that what you're talking about? Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And 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 that's really hard, I think. Um, and th this is the thing that surprises me, too. You know, you remember I've, I've led a, a volunteer organization. Now I run a company these days. So everyone's sort of on the payroll and then you have your audience. But uh, and eventually you have staff, but change is a problem in volunteer organizations. It's a problem in companies. Mm -hmm. It's an, a problem with employees and in towers, office towers and factories. It's it's more of a human condition, is it not? Oh, without question. Um, and a human condition, to repeat something I said a few minutes ago, that is just growing and growing. Yeah. Um, and every once in a while, well, the spike, we got in uh, late March, early April 2020, um, certainly provided some evidence to people who thought talk about a changing world was overdone. Uh, no, it's, it's under-talked, actually. It's underdone. Uh, and although, and, and we're going to see more spikes. They won't be pandemics necessarily. But that's the future. The future is going to continue to move at as fast 
faster, with more things that are hard to predict in advance, uh, requiring more agility, adaptability, um, thinking ahead of the curve um, from institutions and from us individually. Let's talk about the pandemic a little bit in 2020 and the global crisis that we're still disentangling ourselves from and not quite on the other side of. So you're right. I mean, would you agree we've we've interviewed like at this point um, dozens of guests on my podcast about the pandemic and the acceleration of the pace of change? Is this the fastest leap you've seen in your lifetime and your leadership experience and change acceleration? Or have there been other windows of time where you think it's been as great? I think... The last two weeks in, in March and the first two weeks in April is probably the biggest spike that I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah. Not that there weren't others, but right. that's the biggest one. How, how did the dynamics or do the dynamics of change themselves change when the pace gets accelerated that quickly? Like what shifts in that framework? Well, it, the, the stakes go up when you make mistakes, obviously, um, but also they go up on the plus side. That is to say, in a, a spiking scenario, if you can see the opportunity, change always produces threats, but it always produces opportunities too. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can see the opportunities, and mobilize people to not run away or freeze, but to get excited about those opportunities and start to work toward uh, capitalizing on them. Uh, the upside is uh, is incredible. Uh, th- this uh, consulting company that I helped co-found 11 years ago, I mean, the the stories that we get on a regular basis of what some of our clients have been able to do by following the the kind of the emerging science of change that we're trying to uh, pioneer, um, it the most memorable thing is that the number of times you hear again and again the client didn't think it was possible. Mm. Okay. That all of a sudden, we've been trying, I just read a, um, a communication literally within the last week of somebody who had been trying to change something for decades, probably not decades, probably, but a long time, Sure, right? They managed to, with a little guidance from us, do it plus more in less than 100 days. Wow. The thing I worry about is I can see already coming out of the pandemic um, or where we are getting ready to come out of the pandemic that um, some people, not many, are doing a pretty darn good job of finding those opportunities, mobilizing people and achieving something they didn't think was possible and getting um, either mission-relevant results or economic results if they're a business and some people are just really struggling yeah uh and so the 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 rich get richer and the poor get poorer syndrome 
um, has got another tailwind associated with it. That's uh, now how well you're handling uh, this uh, change. And uh, certainly don't want to bring down the people who are doing a great job. We should be cheering them and um, getting them more publicity so others can copy. Um, but bringing up uh, the mean and the people that are re really struggling, if we don't, um, I mean, society is going to have some real challenges um, in the next decade or more. What are the, and we're going to get into your eightfold framework that you've uh, been teaching for 25 years, but um, I would love to know the difference in the mindset or the approach of a leader who has seen it as an opportunity and a leader who has been paralyzed by the obstacles. Because I think you're right. And I think if all of us think about leaders we know, we can see leaders who sort of said, okay, now we get to do this. And they had a, actually, despite the circumstances, a very strong year, perhaps even grew their cause, their mission, their business. And then others who just kind of froze deer in the headlights or are struggling very badly. Can you talk about the, the differences in the qualities and characteristics between those two leaders in, in your view? Well, one for sure is that um, the ones who are doing better under these conditions talk more, think more about opportunities than the other. Even under normal conditions or slow-moving conditions, they just think not just what's the problem that's landed in my office today, but what are the opportunities for us as an organization to do something that's mission relevant and important. Um, they also are more likely to um, believe that more people are needed rather than less to be able to uh, turn the ship, if you will. In other words, uh, build that guiding coalition. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and then from there to build on out um, and open up the uh, opportunity for people to participate in change initiatives beyond the usual suspects, so to speak. They just naturally think it's going to take a lot of us um, kind of working on the same uh, page to be able to kind of pick up this car and carry it across the road. I mean, it's a huge task. And the more um, I think a, a third one is they they appreciate more the uh, the power of kind of positive emotions in their capacity to be sustainable over time for keeping us energized. See, I can get your attention and get you to do something in the short term by scaring you. Right. Okay. I, or, or hitting you over the head, you know, leave the room. <laughs> Bam. Yeah. But, but, but that, that is, that, you, you know, you'll get mad, afraid your energy will go up you'll be out of that room so fast and away from my club but that isn't a, a strategy for being able to maintain energy for a period of time to be able to accomplish something big uh, 
if if I run after you to carry uh, on with this dying metaphor with my club, yeah. you'll just run harder and harder. And at a certain point, you start to get fatigued, right? Pretty quickly, um, even if you're a jogger. Uh, and uh, you'll get stressed out and, you know, and it's a mess. Yeah. Um, it's, but positive emotions, being passionate about something, being truly excited about something, that can be, that isn't a, a, a spike emotion in terms of energy level, but that can maintain itself for long periods of time in which an institution can totally transform itself. Mm-hmm. So that's another um, difference, I think. Yeah, those are really good points. And I think there's a difference between momentary hype, like, you know, and, and uh, as, as you describe that, and again, you've studied this your, your whole career, uh, I can see leaders who are consistently positive, consistently galvanizing people. It's not just, oh, I rallied the troop once and now it's back to normal operations. Um, are these skills that can be learned? It's and that's always a good question. I think I think there probably are some people, uh, but I think it's a pretty small group who have, because of their um, circumstances while growing up. Who knows? Maybe even because of their genes. I'm not a uh, an MD researcher um, who have a personality, et cetera, that is just kind of uh, afraid and angry and negative and they just have a heck of a time. Even if you put them through a course, uh, you're fighting personality, which is pretty stable. Um, For a lot of other people, I think it's a matter of taking what's in there and helping them connect to it and enlarge it. So everybody has the, the virtually everybody has yeah. the capacity to get excited about something. So how can I learn to um, connect with that and then use that and let that show when I'm talking to my colleagues about this uh, uh, change that I think we need to, to, to make um, without feeling uh, so vulnerable that I back uh, back away, and opportunity is another one. That that's closer to uh, something that if if you had, it wouldn't hurt for um, a lot more people who are in leadership positions to have a sign in their office, you know, mm-hmm. on the wall. Take take this piece of art down. And put up a sign that says something like, what's our big opportunity? (laughs) No, we had a client um, in Europe, a very interesting guy in an old industry that was not inclined to want to change. The older the industry, the more you you can get stability. Mm. And uh, we helped his executive committee craft a statement of what they thought their big opportunity was. And he liked it so much. He had it, his office had uh, kind of glass on one side out to the uh, hallway and along the hallway in letters, what, uh, 
maybe 15 inches tall, mm-hmm. he had that slogan run all the way down the hallway. Amazing. The, our big opportunity is so he could, anybody in his office, and he would sit with his back to it. So when they were looking at him, they would also see behind him this thing, right? And everybody that walks down the hallway, of course, is stopping and, and trying to figure out what is this. Um, so I think people can be, well, we've proven it. People can be taught to be, to think more about opportunity and to act more on opportunity. So that part can be, quote, taught, unquote. So it's a mixed bag. No, that's uh, I, I get that, and you know what? It's funny as 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 someone who's tried to practice this framework now for a while, uh, years, decades. I find I've got both sides inside me. I think most people do, right? There are days where I can be kind of negative and doer and see the problem, and there there are other days where I'm like, and the framework and and teachings like yours help me realize, oh no, when I focus on the opportunity. I rally the team, I rally the troops, et cetera. So that's helpful. I want to ask you before we dive into the framework, uh, Dr. Cotter, I'd love to know, how did you get interested in this? How did this become your life, your career, your academics, the institute, the uh, company you've now founded? What prompted you as a young academic to say, yeah, I'm going to focus on change? It uh, didn't start there. It started with, I'm, I was curious. I got to see... While I was, even before college, before I went to uh, MIT, that uh, some institutions um, seem to do a lot better than others in uh, achieving their mission. And so I was curious why. And in college, um, I ended up president of our uh, fraternity and at MIT. It wasn't quite Animal House uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, We were, uh, that meant at age 20, I was responsible for 70 people for their um, uh, room, their food, their uh, studies. We did uh, all kinds of uh, mentoring and counseling for uh, the younger people, for their social life. I mean, it was a total institution. And for two buildings in the Back Bay of Boston, which today would be, you know, $12 million worth of real estate at 20 years old. And again, I could see by looking at the fraternity system that some places were run much better than others. And I began to see the problems (laughs) up close and get curious about that. And that journey took me uh, eventually around to concluding that one, not the only, but certainly one of the reasons that uh, organizations and people outperformed others was their capacity to adapt faster uh, and smarter, uh, to change when it's appropriate to take advantage of opportunities, et cetera. So the performance outlook, if you will, took me to, ooh, the world is changing and those who adapt better and faster and smarter are performing better. 
which took me on to leadership as a topic too, uh, because my doctoral thesis was actually not in business. It was following uh, big city mayors during the very tumultuous 1960s when most cities were experiencing riots and the like. And the distance between the three cities that did best and the three cities that did worst, the three mayors that did best and three mayors that did worst was huge. Wow. I mean, gargantuan. And um, so, uh, and the three that did the best um, were much more opportunity focused, um, rally the troops, um, get lots and lots of people focusing on some critically smart initiatives, changing their towns for the better, and on we go from there. Hmm. Did you have pushback when you decided, like from your colleagues or anyone in academia, when you decided to focus on change or were people innately curious about what you would discover? I'm just curious. It seems uh, like an interesting field. Yes. And I'm not sure if I ever got pushback. Uh, um, I'm sure some people thought this wasn't the most important topic. Whatever they were studying was the most important topic. You know, this is kind of human. The, the one place I got pushed back at Harvard is when I decided to write a fable, a business fable. Right. Uh, nobody said it. Nobody at that point, I, nobody would, you know, say, John, you're an idiot, <laughs> but you could see it. You know, they're, they're kind of all going, oh, he's lost his mind. You know, uh, that fable has. Uh, spur, uh, led to three stage plays. Wow. Uh, not Broadway, but, uh, you know, uh, it has uh, uh, impacted uh, millions and millions and millions of people. Yeah. Uh, it's been um, translated into 30 or 40 languages. Um, it was the New York Times bestseller. Um, I've had everybody everywhere from CEOs to of large corporations down to uh, somebody on a, the janitorial staff of a company that I once worked for who came up to me looking all kinds of awkward and embarrassed and everything else and saying, excuse me, uh, Professor Cotter. And I said, yeah. And he said, um, I found your penguin book. And I said, really? And he says, he says, makes you think. <laughs> and I said, and he said, thank you very much. And he turned around and walked away. Um, and I must admit that made my week. <laughs> well, it's, it's a, it's fascinating. It's short. You can read it in a morning or an afternoon. It's uh, you've got some principles after Pat Lencioni, Patrick Lencioni, who's been on this show a few times, he would say, People only read the fable parts of his book and, and ignore the end. I'm the guy who skips to the end to look for the principles. So, uh, right, right. I, I hear you though, and um, and that's become. You're talking about our, else, our our iceberg. Why can't I say that is melting? Right? Is that the book you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's your best selling book uh, to date. That and leading change have both sold a lot of copies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. 
Okay, well, what I want to do, and I know these are the subjects of, of books in themselves, but if you could give us just a quick overview of the Eightfold Framework that uh, I think has held up over 25, 30 years of teaching it now, you know, creating a sense of urgency, guiding coalition, they're the principles I use to lead change over the years, and um, would love to hear you just kind of take us through a quick overview if, if that's helpful for leaders. Sure. What we found is when we could identify and uh, convince ourselves with real data that uh, somebody had made a major change that had resulted in much better uh, results, it tended to start with creating a sense of urgency among as many people as possible. And that means a, a, a kind of an intellectual sense that, ooh, this is the right thing to do, and an emotional sense that, ooh, this is compelling. So it appeals to both head and heart, and not just a small number of people, not just the executive committee, but in the most successful cases, large swaths of the organization, never 100%. We, uh, I first wrote that if you could get 50%, you were, you'd established a solid basis sure. to proceed. Um, they then put together uh, what I call a guiding coalition because it wasn't a, just a chunk of the hierarchy. It tended to be people from across the various units in the hierarchy and up and down levels too. So a very diverse group who had in a sense, uh, uh, information um, from various uh, all over the place who had connections to people all over the place, who had some people with some leadership skills, good reputations, um, some management skills, and who learned to work together. In other words, you couldn't do this alone, right? Absolutely. Um, In no case... Did we find, I mean, the heroic individual leader, larger than life, highly charismatic, that somehow goes out and makes a speech or two and everybody changes, doesn't happen that way. And the coalition, one of the first things it does in uh, successful cases is um, it goes back to now why are we feeling this sense of urgency? Well, it's almost always associated with opportunity. So what if, if we were to capitalize on this, what would it look like? That's what vision is. And trying to articulate that um, so that when they talk to others, uh, others can kind of relate to it emotionally, intellectually. And then picking out strategic initiatives to get things rolling. Then comes communication, the point of which is to get people to buy in, again, intellectually and emotionally. Uh, People under-communicate constantly because in running uh, an organization in a time of steady state, you don't need to communicate that much. Mm -hmm. That's part of the whole idea is you want to eliminate the need for communication through standardization and the like. Um, Here, more communication to more people to get 
them to not just nod their heads, but to really believe at uh, intellectual and emotional levels that maybe this makes sense. And then it's a matter of um, uh, kind of letting people um, try things that are on that path, uh, encouraging volunteers, encouraging, empowering people, uh, resisting the uh, impulse to want to control everything, mm-hmm. and guiding things toward, I mean, if you're going to do anything, guide it to make sure that you get some, what we call short-term wins, which are, uh, these efforts aren't just efforts, but they lead to results that you can point to as evidence that uh, you're onto something. Uh, that builds credibility and momentum, celebrate that, pat people on the back. Um, and you get going with a kind of a virtuous cycle. Don't let urgency down, mm-hmm. you know, get some more people involved, some more initiatives launched, get more and better results. And as this thing expands outward and more and more people from the early adopters and innovators all the way to some of the laggards uh, get involved, ultimately you will transform something the way you do something. And then it's just a matter of making sure that it is stabilized, which means kind of institutionalizing it um, into the structure systems, policies, and most importantly, making sure that it kind of becomes the new culture or a part of a new culture of just the way we do things around here. So it'll get taught to new hires, new um, employees, new volunteers, uh, and will maintain itself because it is possible to work a couple of years to achieve something that's quite remarkable, then to take your eye off of it to go on to the next thing. But because you didn't have it really stabilized in a culture, it starts to slide back toward the old ways. It's such a helpful framework. I'd love to ask you, not don't want to put you on the spot, but can you think of a couple of companies that you think right now are doing this really well that people could watch? Because I'm, I'm going to mention a church leader. I wouldn't expect you to know that, that I think, I don't know whether Mike has actually read your book or not, but he embodies it. So anyone from business that, uh, you would say, yeah, these companies or this leader or this group is doing a really good job. We've worked with a company called HMS in Dallas, okay. which uh, um, helps basically does a number of things uh, to help free up money based that can be used for healthcare okay. uh, by Medicare fraud, you know, uh, or states doing uh, the, or companies doing the wrong wrong thing, um, and they've done a marvelous job over the last three or four years of uh, going from a frustrating position of a growing market, but they were flat in sales, to twenty five percent growth for year after year, stock price tripling at one point, um, and very much because they focused on let's figure out how to figure out this uh, 
uh, transformation thing and do it uh, because we really do think there are opportunities here that are important. Among big, well-known companies, I've been watching one for 35 years that has done a much better job than the average big company. Uh, and they've gone from startup to by some measures of customer satisfaction, economic performance, employee satisfaction, um, growth, number one in the world. From startup to number one in the world in an established legacy industry. And it's the airline industry. And the company that's done this is called Southwest. Yeah. And there, I could tell you story after story of how uh, they managed to keep uh, holding some things constant while changing other things as they grew and as they expanded uh, and doing it quickly, efficiently, um, with a lot of help from a lot of people, uh, including people buried in the organization. Um, very impressive. And although one CEO, their second or third, Herb Kelleher, mm. certainly added, added a lot to that, um, he's, he's long gone. Yeah. And uh, it, um, they still can do a you know, turn to the right, turn to the left, and get their people to go along. I mean, even under the horrid conditions, that the airline industry is going on um, right now, they have done uh, much better than the average airline, again, because um, they're managing their way through uh, COVID. Now, having said that, they've got huge challenges along with everybody else, but, um, but that's an interesting example of uh, a big and a well-known company that has done this very well. Well, it's a great example too, and that's to point eight in your framework, right? It's anchoring the change in the culture so that that actually, it, it survives succession. It becomes the soul or the DNA of the company. Um, Airbnb, I don't know that you'd agree with that. I think they've done a wonderful job in this pandemic because they were based on travel. And so they went hyper-local almost within six to eight weeks. It's like, we're just going to get people out of town. We may not be able to get you across the world. We're going to get you out of town. One church leader that comes to mind, and I wouldn't expect you to know him, John, his name's Mike Todd. He leads Transformation Church in Tulsa, uh, one of the fastest growing and largest churches in America, a young African-American leader in his early 30s. Uh, whether he's read your framework or not, I think he embodies all of that. And uh, it's just really fun if people can like follow Southwest or follow, I don't know about Airbnb, but you know, Mike Todd, it's like, oh yeah, that's these principles in operation. And it's really, really fun to see very opportunity minded. And they had a banner year. Again, when a lot of churches and organizations were struggling, uh, they, they have broken records across the board. Um, I'd love to talk about the dynamics of change. You wrote a book, you've written prolifically over the years, but you wrote a book on unmotivating people to change because, and I think you hinted at it. You said, you know, you you can intellectualize that this makes sense, but in creating a sense of urgency and building that guiding coalition and um, getting people on board, what are some of the keys to human motivation? 
Well, one thing to remember is that, I mean, it's wonderful that we're, that so many of us were lucky to get a good education. Uh, but that also has some drawbacks um, because the education, they, they forgot everything except this part of our body. You know, right. everything down here kind of is ignored in education. And yet when we studied um, nearly a hundred or 150 change efforts, we reported in a book called The Heart of Change that the most successful um, again and again and again, the theme that went through there is that it was the it was uh, creating experiences that were emotionally compelling for people that got them to change. That that was more powerful than giving people data um, to change how they thought, which led them to change their behavior. That isn't to say that data thinking behavior link isn't enormously important in life. That's not the point. But when you're talking about change of any magnitude, the evidence is uh, this is why, well, I've learned a lot about consulting in the last uh, 12 years. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the, the consultants that show up with a PowerPoint slide deck that's about uh, an inch and a half thick yeah. and uh, go through it. And it's all intellectual. And uh, then they leave and except for their bill, of course. Uh, and, uh, and then you come back two years later and nothing's changed. And the PowerPoint deck is either missing or it's on somebody's bookshelf. I mean, it's a, it's a, a cliched example of, uh, just appealing to the head is not how you mobilize large groups of people to make changes and transform institutions. The emotional part is enormously important. And uh, the emotional part gets triggered with words, but it also gets triggered with experiences. Um, so... I can still remember a uh, one of my uh, senior faculty when I was a junior faculty um, at uh, Harvard. I uh, went to him once and said, I've got this class coming up and um, uh, I'm trying to get the I'm trying to, the, the Harvard MBA program was uh, designed originally to be a transformational experience for people. So. That's the way we thought. And I said, I'm not, not having as much impact on these kids as I want on uh, the way they're, they're, um, they're thinking and the way they behave in class. And I said, I've kind of written notes here. This is what I want to tell them. And I think this, and I read him, you know, a couple of minutes worth of something that I had written down. And he listened very patiently. And he said, uh, uh, John, your challenge, I think, is not the lyrics, it's the music. <laughs> there you go. There you go. How do you how do you motivate people? Like if you're if you're giving like how do you move the heart? Because you're right, leadership is communication. 
And a lot of people here step up to a microphone who listen to this. So it's easy to go with the PowerPoint with the slide deck and go, well, for the following eight logical reasons, you know, we should move, we should do this, we should change, we should plant, we should not plant. But how do you move people's hearts? Well, it starts with some understanding of what they what they care about and what human beings in general care about and appealing to that. Um, another tragic mistake that happens inside corporations all the time, of course, is the senior management communicating the latest earnings per share to the broader uh, uh, middle and lower parts of the organization. And the senior management's very proud because the numbers are good relative to the competition. And down inside the organization, it has no meaning. Right. I mean, I don't own any shares. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and what? I'm going to go home and tell my kid, oh, Dad, how'd you do today? EPS was up. <laughs> no, doesn't work that way. You know, uh, you want to be able to tell your kid that you did something that actually helps somebody, that you're proud of the work uh, you, you do, um, that there's something about the products or services that you contribute to that actually make a difference, a positive difference in customers' lives, like your friend Tommy, mm. who owns one of our, I mean, it's very human, um, and it's uh, uh, something that uh, people in their lives, not just in their work lives, but in their lives, uh, care about. Um, and there isn't, I heard somebody once say, well, that would be easy in some places, uh, but we make ball bearings. Hmm. You know, what can you do? And the answer is lots of stuff. It depends on, yeah, you're still dealing with human beings who are customers and you've got human beings who are employees. And by the way, you don't own all the stock. Most of it's in pension programs for middle-class people. So instead of talking about profitability, talk about how uh, your stock went up and how uh, certain institutions own big blocks of it on behalf of school teachers, mm. on behalf of plumbers, and how proud you are that in a small way, you and your colleagues are able to contribute to their retirement plan, mm. which uh, God knows they deserve. Yeah. Well, you know, it's anybody, uh, all institutions and it's not manipulative, it's being honest. As a matter of fact, when you fudge the facts, you risk getting yourself into trouble because somebody will find out and then your credibility is dead. And good luck trying to influence people when your credibility is no longer there. Yeah, those are really good points. And I know something at staff meeting we always did at the church and I do now in my company is we just tell stories of life change, like uh, where I am right now, which is an online business. You know, we'll, if we hear from a podcast listener, uh, we'll often share that at staff meeting or uh, something came into the public inbox and it's like, wow, look at the difference this made, right? It's connecting the dots. It's letting people know that 
yeah, maybe you worked on some code on the website or maybe, you know, you were just producing yet another episode, but here's the impact it had on people's lives. That's the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about the speed of change. So long before COVID, and we've already touched on how accelerated it's been over the last year, uh, but you were writing a decade ago and earlier that change just keeps accelerating and accelerating. And I think you finished uh, an article in uh, the Harvard Business Review in 2012 saying, you know, unless you manage to respond to the pace of change, a lot of companies just aren't going to make it. Leaders aren't going to make it. Can you talk about what's at stake and some of the dynamics of rapid change? Yeah. First of all, it's useful to, I mean, nobody thinks about it, but it's useful to realize that this trend toward more change, faster change, and more complex change is not only pronounced in the in my lifetime, in, in your lifetime, but it goes back to the the switch between a hunting and gathering basically society and an agricultural society. I mean, it goes all the way uh, during industrialization. Everything kind of sped up. And now as we move into a kind of an information age or a computer age, it's speeding up again. And um, this has just profound um, implications because what, I mean, it's not a good metaphor again, but imagine driving a car at five miles an hour versus 170 miles an hour. In terms of the stakes, at five miles an hour, the, the, the probability that you could hurt yourself or somebody else is pretty low. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> at, 100, at 170, you could, do, you could go off the road into somebody's house, you know. Yeah, fireballs, like everybody's be, dead. Yeah, a lot oh, of yeah, damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, this, the stakes are, are huge. Um, and in our interconnected world now, um, more and more, what I do in Sarasota or in Boston or somewhere else in New England is being felt in places that I've never been, okay? In uh, Tibet, in uh, Swaziland, in Croatia. Uh, through a complicated series of interconnections. And so um, when individuals um, do things, although they don't see the results of what they do, it's not in their office. It's not looking at them like I'm looking at you right now. It's, well, here, here we go. In the paper yesterday, mm-hmm. It said that uh, the Biogen conference that occurred in Boston in February, the latest estimates by people who are not trying to play games but are really looking is that at first they thought it affected um, a number, dozens of people uh, with COVID. Okay, yeah, this was a super spreader event. I remember that. Yeah, Right, right. Then it went up to, well, no, we've traced, you know, some of them, a lot, a lot of them left Boston to other countries. So we traced those and the numbers go up to hundreds. 
The latest estimate is 300,000. From one conference in Boston in February, 300,000 people got infected with COVID. Wow. And that would only be possible if we have, you know, jet planes, we have this interconnected world, we have uh, uh, people who are moving around quickly. Uh, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. A hundred years ago, the average person was born somewhere and they died there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was it. Well, that's not the world we live in. Although we're shut down from travel temporarily to a degree, that's temporary. Uh, and they're building, as you know, new supersonic uh, commercial jets that'll get us uh, across the U.S. or to Europe or to Asia um, faster even than the first generation of Concords. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what's the implication for leaders with the rapid interconnected network world and the, the pace of change? What, how, do, how does that change the dynamic of leading change? Oh, at least a decade ago, a reporter asked me, um, in the future, what kind of leadership are we going to need more of? And what he was thinking, it was a he, I remember that, is either leadership that has a more sophisticated um, global uh, sense Mm -hmm. Or leadership that is more technologically sophisticated. Right. And I said, the kind of leadership we need in the future is more. And having thought back, I've thought about that and been asked that question many times since. And I keep coming back to that answer. And in the book I'm writing right now, the second to the last chapter is called something like more leadership from more people. Hmm. What leadership increasingly involves is getting other people to lead. Right. Because you need, now we're back to change, right? The, the faster the change, the more the change, the more often the change, the more people you need to be, have out there helping you. And one person providing the leadership, even if they're uh, extraordinary, doesn't do it. Hmm. So a lot of what leadership is, is getting others to lead so that you get the multiplier effect so you can um, actually make more happen faster and smarter and better. That is such good advice. And I think there's way too many leaders in business and in the church world, not-for-profits, who are the sole hero kind of model. It's like, I'm going to do it all. And and it's interesting. Uh, I'll talk about this at the end of the podcast, probably in a segment I do. But it's funny. I'm, I'm remembering after having read your book, we had an existing board, but they were all, with all due respect, older people who had been there for a long, long time. And I thought, these are not going to be the, the people who, who create change. So I got permission to create a guiding coalition. And we set up like a vision and mission team and uh, kind of pulled from throughout the organization at each of the churches. And they're the ones that we together crafted the vision. We crafted the strategy. So 
you were already getting ownership on board. And, and that's a very simple example, but you're saying basically it, it can't just start and end with you to leaders. Is that fair? Correct. Correct. And, and um, the, the more the, back to your question about stakes, I think um, the upside of getting a lot more people from a lot more institutions kind of into the leadership game, even if only a small degree versus not having that happen uh, over the next uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, it's, this, the stakes are big. We've got to do it. Mm. A couple of quick questions to, to wrap up today. And thank you for being so generous with your time. A lot of leaders, you know, it's like, okay, well, I, I got to make some change. If there's one area where you think, okay, if you're going to start the change process, start here. What, what would you say? I think um, more often than not, because of the, if you will, the feedback systems that go to the typical person in a leadership position, if they don't watch out, it's very easy for them to receive information that suggests that their people um, see what they see, understand what they understand, and therefore it's not that difficult a task, really, to convince them that some change is needed. I mean, it's kind of obvious because of we're losing money. Hmm. It's kind of obvious because we're um, on Sundays, not that many seats. Yeah. Are, uh, it's kind of, no, <laughs> uh, creating a real sense of urgency that there is a, both a problem and a real opportunity here. Uh, and among lots of people, um, is just, uh, essential and it's very easy again, because of the information that tends to flow to, uh, leaders unless they go out of their way to uh, maintain relationships that are open and honest with a larger group of people um, to fool yourself, to say, well, this isn't a problem, now let's move on. Mm. And then they wonder why they get bogged down, why people resist. And then the question is always, why are these people, why are these people unreasonably resisting? Or they come up with, uh, um, talking points of, you know, they're stubborn, they're stupid, uh, they're threatened, you know, with the future. Well, maybe a little bit of all of that stuff, but you also didn't set the mood right at the beginning. Hmm. Do that. It's good advice. Okay. Is there ever, because you've done this for many, many years in many conversations, is there ever a question about change you wish people would ask you, but nobody ever asks you? Well, I don't know if anybody has ever, I've, I've written something, but not published anything on the subject of charisma. Okay. And um, I suppose it does occur to me that I wish people would occasionally ask me about uh, the importance of charisma because the reigning implicit theory of the connection between charisma and change is 
every once in a while, you get a very charismatic individual who has such kind of powerful draw on people that they uh, they do whatever he says, which uh, creates changes and better results. Um, hooray. Uh, and when you study it carefully enough, you discover that more likely what it is, is that you've got a person, a uh, solid person, um, he or she follows the kind of steps that I write about. He or she follows the kind of principles that I talk about. That eventually starts giving results, produces change. And when enough people see the unexpected, good, beneficial, transformational change, they look back at that person and suddenly the person looks to them larger than life and charismatic. That is so a fascinating insight. Causality is backwards. <laughs> it's not charisma leads to great change. It's great change leads to a perception of charisma. I hope you publish that. Someday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dr. John Cotter, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for being with us. If people want to learn more, or obviously your books are available on Amazon, everywhere books are sold, but where is sort of a headquarters for you these days on the internet that people can find you? Just type in John Cotter and you'll get some um, um repeats of welcome back cotter the tv show <laughs> from a long time ago but mostly you'll get more information about me than do you need or go to the uh the company's website because there's free stuff on that um and some written pieces that haven't been published that are really th that we are told people find very helpful so that's uh cotter international is the name of the company Amazon, Cotter International, or John P. Cotter. Okay. At your fingertips. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, making the time. And, and thanks for taking your work so seriously. It's made a huge difference in my life. And uh, I know the lives of millions of other people. And uh, now a few more as a result of today. Thanks so much, Dr. Cotter. No, th thank you for doing things like this. Uh, the world needs more. Well, you just heard from uh, the leading expert on change in the world, and it was such a thrill, as you could probably tell, to catch up with Dr. Cotter and have a conversation with him. We have lots of great episodes coming up for you. Still to come, uh, Michael Arietta. He's got a fascinating story out of Silicon Valley, now Atlanta, on startup as a young entrepreneur. Cal Newport, Adam Grant. Oh, my goodness. Talk about a powerful conversation uh, Steve Cuss, Annie F. Downs, Amy Edmondson, uh, Simon Sinek, Ian Morgan Cron, all of them, Rick Warren, coming back and more. I didn't even mention John Maxwell. That, that's what you get when you subscribe for free. So if you haven't done that yet, please do so. And thank you to everybody who's leaving ratings and reviews. We read them all. Really appreciate it. Really thankful for you. So uh, hey, we do have a new episode coming up in just a few days, and that is with Deanne Turner. She's back on the podcast, and she served for decades as Chick-fil-A's vice president of talent, and she's hired, been responsible for the hiring of tens of thousands of people. So she returns to the podcast with pro tips on how to crush your career. Here's an excerpt. Well, for me, 
Um, I'm looking for people willing to go above and beyond because I worked in an organization that had a principle make second mile service second nature. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's an extra above and beyond these days to get a handwritten note. And because one in 10 do it, it really makes you stand out. Somebody might nece- not necessarily keep the note, but they certainly remember that you wrote it. And it makes an impression. And not only that, two days later, if they're still evaluating candidates, they get a handwritten note from you and you're not lost in the you know, thousands of emails they have. You can really stand out as different. And, and, and by the way, that, that just not for interviewing, but send handwritten notes for any occasion these days and you get noticed. That is next time. And we're going to have a fascinating conversation about that. And now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And I'm thinking about what not to say when leading change. And this is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can book your free digital strategy session today by going to promediafire.com forward slash church growth. And by Belay, you can text Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y to 31996 and get your free download of Belay's delegation planner to start reclaiming your free time today. So what should you say when you're leading change? I've led a lot of change. I, I often think particularly 30 years into my leadership or whatever. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, between law and all that, it's about 30 years. It's like, you know what? <laughs> the only thing that's consistent is change. And this has been a year of rapid change. We talked about it a little bit in the podcast, but even off mic, uh, John Cotter and I were talking about just the incredible rapid pace of change he's seen, the acceleration. And you have to lead in the middle of that. So Here's some things that I have learned about what not to say when you're leading change, okay? And this is interesting because when you hear the Adam Grant interview that's coming up on the podcast, you're going to go like, oh, yeah, this is borne out by science. But anyway, um, here's one thing I've heard leaders say. It would like, not don't do this. These changes are great. I can't understand why you don't like them. Um, no, that kind of lacks empathy. And often when we lead change, we come out of the gate saying, hey, I got the bulletproof plan. Uh, everybody listen and follow me. And this actually has the opposite effect. So when you come out and you have very little empathy for opponents, like I don't understand why you don't like them, it doesn't go well. Here's a, here's a second thing, particularly for Christian leaders. Never ever get up and say, God told me this is what we should do. I really struggle with people who speak for God. And uh, listen, I'm a preacher, okay? So I do speak for God. But when people, so it's one thing to say Jesus came and died and rose again. That's one thing. You can say that. But when you're like, hey, we should build this building or you need to give me money or whatever. Mm, no, no, I don't, I don't think you can say God gave me a plan. Even if you believe God gave you a plan, you should be really careful. Here's an alternative. Say our team has looked at this, prayerfully considered the options. We believe this is the best move we can make at this time for these reasons. I think that actually gives you credibility. And if you use God's name for your personal plans, you lose credibility. At least you do in my book. So how about this one? Uh, we got this all figured out. Trust me. Mm. People who say, trust me, often aren't trustable. So don't try to be the know-it-all person. Uh, it just it just actually reduces confidence that you've got this figured out. Um, here's another thing, too. Sometimes I've heard leaders say, look, what happened in the past is completely irrelevant. Focus on the future. Uh, I am very tempted to do this. Um, but, you know, what you have to realize is that people have memories of the past. They don't have a clear picture of the future. And so... Um, you got to honor the past without living it. So maybe say like, hey, we've had some great moments, some great seasons in the past, and we want to ensure we have many more in the future. That's what I'm hoping this change will accomplish. That can be good to honor your predecessors. So how about this? Everybody needs to get on board right now. That's just not going to happen, okay? It's not going to happen. People are not going to get on board right now. You wish they would, but you might say something like, I realize this is going to stretch all of us. I appreciate those of you who are willing to give this a chance, even though you're not sure. 
we really value that. Um, another one, and this is a temptation for me. I know people are leaving. Who cares, right? So that's how I feel sometimes because that's just a mask for pain, right? Um, don't gloat. Don't pretend it doesn't matter. It does matter. Um, now, there are times people are going to leave your church and there are times where people should leave your church. But remember, um, these are relationships and people feel it. So uh, rather than being you know, upset or mad at them, just say, yes, it is sad that people are leaving, that we are losing customers or whatever your case is. But I think what we need to remember is that they'll have another place to go to. And I'm excited about creating space for people who haven't yet been to a church or an organization like ours. I'm excited you want to create space for them too. So that's something you can say. Final thing, don't say your plan is bulletproof. It's not bulletproof. Okay, it might fail. You don't know. Instead, say something like, I agree. I don't know for sure if this is going to work out. But it's helped a lot of other people. And uh, maybe nobody's really tried this before, but I believe it's our next best step. So we're going to try it. And after we've given it our best, we'll evaluate it. Thanks for the freedom to try new things. Okay, way better than, hey, this is bulletproof. As soon as you tell me it's bulletproof, I don't believe you. So anyway, I hope that helps you. Those are things that I've learned not to say when leading change. And uh, John Cotter has some amazing things to say. We do have show notes for you. Uh, you can find them at kerryneuhoff.com, episode 400. Yeah, they're there. And we're back next time with a fresh episode. Got so much good stuff uh, for you this year. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for leading. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.